We're going to ask you to open your Bible to the Old Testament, to the book of Haggai. That is amongst the smaller prophets. Just start with Matthew and work your way back from Malachi, Zechariah, then Haggai. We're going to be in chapter 1, and this evening I want to teach from this chapter and deal with the thought, consider your ways. You'll see that phrase two times in this chapter, but I think it's a, a good book to examine, and it has a lot of good things in it. So let's have a word of prayer as we get ready for this tonight. Father, we're grateful again for another opportunity to fellowship with the saints. It is our prayer that tonight you would help us by your mighty Holy Spirit to open up these scriptures. We pray if there's anything complex that you would help us to simplify and clarify we pray, God, that you would open all of our ears to hear what you once said to Israel, but what you are still saying to your church. And then, Lord, I pray that when we depart from this place, but never from your presence, that we'll be able to meditate on these things throughout the rest of the week. We love you in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Okay. These smaller books of the Old Testament consist of some prophetic statements by different people, and God is in the habit of using them to call Israel back to living holy, calling them back to obedience to his word. Haggai and Zechariah were contemporaries. The children of Israel went into captivity because of disobedience to God's law. You can see that at the end of 2 Chronicles. But during those decades that they were in captivity, God spoke through people like Ezekiel and uh, ministered to the children of Israel. But there came a point in time when people knew that the captivity was over. Even Daniel was able to determine that by studying the scriptures. Once the time had been fulfilled, the Lord opened the door for the children of Israel to return to their land. So they migrated from Iraq back to Palestine, and all of that is told in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Once they returned to the promised land, it's at that point where they had begun to rebuild the walls and then to rebuild the temple. Because of opposition and also because of the fact they became discouraged, they stopped working on God's house. So it's at this point that God begins to use Haggai and then after a couple of months, Zechariah, to try to inspire the people to get back to working on God's building. So let's look at chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest. So notice that the word came to the civil authority, 
and to the religious authority, to the governor and to the priest. And this says in the second year and on the 21st day, uh, excuse me, the first day of the sixth month. Now come to the last verse of chapter one and you can see where God had basically got the children of Israel to move in. And verse 15 says in the four and 20 20th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. Now, the reason I want you to see the first and the last verse of chapter one is because this shows you that everything we're about to read took place over a three week period. The man of God is preaching the same message to the children of Israel over and over and over again. How, how many of you are like me and you learn by repetition? I just need to be told something over and over again. Yeah. So this is what Haggai had to do in this particular scenario. So verse number two, here's the, here's the word of the Lord. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts saying, this people say the time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Now what they're saying here is that we don't feel that we ought to be working on God's house right now. now they've been letting the house pretty much go without repair and without being looked after and they've been doing their own thing so now God puts their words in the mouth of the prophet to let them know God isn't happy with what they're saying and the fact that they're saying now is not the time shows you they're putting it off so this is procrastination and procrastination is the grave in which opportunity is buried people that often say well let's put it off till tomorrow let's put it off till next week we don't have to do that now. God's not pressing us to do that now. There's no need to hurry. People who procrastinate don't get anything done. They don't. And so we, we have to look into this text and see that not only is God rebuking the children of Israel because of their laziness, but in many ways he's talking to us who are still reading the story. If there are things we can take care of today, for him, then why do we put him off till tomorrow? And what is it that's going on in your life that's so important that you really need to tell God you need to be secondary during this season of my life while I make this other thing primary? And that's what was happening here. You can see in verse number three that the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet saying, is it a time for you to dwell in your sealed houses and this house lie waste? So God is interested in his house. Now, how important is this? Keep your finger here, and let's go to Exodus 25. That's the second book of the Bible, Exodus 25. Notice, beginning with verse 1, Exodus 25, second book of the Bible. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. And here's the offering. Of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart, ye shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take of them. Gold, silver, brass, blue, purple, scarlet, fine linen, goat's hair, and so on and so forth. Notice that God is going to use this according to verse number 8. Let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. From the time the children of Israel were brought out of Egypt, from the time they were redeemed from the house of bondage, God wanted a house for them. And he didn't wait a long time for them to get in the wilderness for him to tell them he wanted them to have a house. He said, here's how you're going to build it. You have everything that you need to build the house. 
You say, well, how in the world did they end up with all of this wealth? I mean, after all, they were slaves in Egypt toward the end of their tenure there. So where do they get all of this good stuff? Well, let's not forget, before they were driven out of Egypt, God told them to go to their neighbors and get this and get that. And sure enough, when the plagues broke out and, uh, and Moses was in charge of all of that, the Egyptians were so glad to see the Israelites go. They said, please get out of here and you don't have to give me anything back. So the Israelites were like, oh, my goodness, look at all of this wonderful stuff that we have. And no sooner than they were counting their wealth, God said, I want it for my house. So that's a principle that's important. God's house is primary to him. And then you can see if he's going to build the house, he uses the resources of the people who are going to worship there. It was never God's plan for the Hittites or the Canaanites to build him a home, but for his people to build him a home. Now let's go back to Haggai then. Having, having said that, you can see how important the, the house is. And the Lord is letting the children of Israel know it's your fault that the house is in disrepair. You're not taking the time to pay attention to what belongs to me. And we should pay attention to what belongs to him. It's Matthew 6, verse 33, that tells us, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. That's what the Bible says. If you could have gone into ancient Israel and walked on the mountaintop and saw the house in a ruined state, do you think that would have told you a lot about the children of Israel? Yeah. Now, before we came here 20 years ago and started, we spent six months at the same time we were getting going here over in Beatrice. And I still remember the first time we went over there to start ministering in a, in a, in a fellowship over there. And I told them I'd come just for six months, and then I'd be done. But the first time I walked into the building there, come through the foyer, and in the foyer there had to be at least 150 dead flies all over the floor. They hadn't moved, hadn't been swept, they were dead, and some of them were just lying there, flittering their wings as I walked through there with Tiffany. Went to the bathrooms, and the bathroom smelled like urine. I told my wife, we're amongst the dead. We're amongst the dead. Anybody who will not look after the place that they call a place of worship has a problem. And it's not a matter of blaming a preacher. There's no need to blame a neighbor. If people can walk into a sanctuary and step over trash in the parking lot and gutters hanging off the side, and it doesn't bother them, and nobody says, well, shouldn't we get somebody or pay somebody to look after this, or shouldn't we think about that? If the people in the congregation don't care enough to be concerned about it, they're dead. They're dead. And this is what we have here. These people have lost their zeal for God. So that's why the prophet comes on the scene. And Haggai comes with a word in verse 2 where he's repeating what they have been saying. This isn't the time to do all of that. So verse 4, the question is asked, well, is it a time for you to dwell in your sealed houses? So they're living good. 
And he said, why should you live good and the house of God fall apart and be left looking as it looks now? He says, this house lies waste. So it really shows you a picture of the house of God, but the house of God is a natural image of where they are spiritually. See? Where they are spiritually. The house of God has fallen apart because all of them have moved away from God's word. And when you move away from God's word, things start falling apart in just about every area of your life because you're no longer concerned about the kingdom of God. You have another agenda and you put those things before God's plans and purposes for your life. So verse number five, this is when the prophet says to them, consider your ways. He didn't say think about the Philistines. He didn't tell them to think about any of the other nations. He said, this is all on you. Thus saith God, consider your ways, your manners, your habits, the way you're conducting yourself. Paul says it this way in the New Testament. Examine yourself to see whether or not you are in the faith. A lot of people say they're Christian, but their lifestyle doesn't match what they're confessing. With their lips, they'll say they love God. And if you would have asked every Jewish person in this ancient time, if they were interested in the Lord, they would say, oh, absolutely. God is number one in in my life. And then you'd have walked up there on that hill and looked around and saw that, that other people were down there working on their homes and making sure all the stones and bricks were in place and ensuring that all of this stuff was together. But then when it came to the house of God, they didn't have any time. That's why the question is there in verse four. Is it time for you to dwell in your pretty homes and God's house is falling apart? It's a matter of priority then. Okay, so verse verse five, consider your ways. Now, this is a theme that you'll find in all of these small books. In Malachi, he says to the children of Israel, I thought that from the priest's lips, should come knowledge. And he said, you, you take the time to come up to God's house, but you don't even offer the best sacrifices. The Old Testament law said, do not bring any animals that have blemishes in their body, but you're bringing crippled goats and you got blind lambs and all of these things that I have already told you I don't approve of and you're offering it to me. And Malachi said in, in the word of the Lord, offer it now to your governor. Would he be pleased? No, he wouldn't. So when you read the first part of Zechariah, and you can see two, two pages over, when Zechariah starts prophesying, he starts his ministry 60 days later after Haggai, and he begins saying the exact same thing in verse 4, turn now from your evil ways. So his message resonated with the people 60 days later because Haggai is already breaking up the fallow ground with the word saying repent. And that's a message that people need to hear. John the Baptist preached it. And then when John the Baptist lost his life and was beheaded, Jesus picked up the same message and said the kingdom of God is here. P repent. Now, Isn't that nice when Jesus preaches the same sermon you preached? I think there are a whole lot of messages preached in the world today that Jesus would never preach. But I think it would be quite, quite, quite impressive for him to proclaim the, the very same thing that, that somebody else proclaimed. 
And then you have the same thing with, with Zephaniah. Zephaniah said, look, all of you folks are up on top of your rooftops and you're worshiping the heavens and the stars and the planetary figures up there. You should turn from your iniquities. Over and over again, God is using these Old Testament prophets to put their finger under the noses of the Jewish people and tell them to get right or get left. Yeah, it's going to be trouble if they don't. I don't think most of us in here like people to reprove us and tell us when we're doing wrong. We prefer to hear about when we're doing right. But since, like the children of Israel, doing right doesn't come natural to us, we tend to have people who are reminding us of what we're doing that's wrong. And in this culture that we have today, where people don't want to hear the word no, and people don't want to be offended, you always have to be nice about how you say things. I, I still laugh whenever I think of when Tiff was working for Head Start, and, and all them little kids were just so honorary and mannish. You know, they jump up on the table and be stomping. And, you know, you, you can't say to the kids, get off the table before I beat your behind. You, you have to say something more appropriate, like, we keep both our feet on the floor. Now, you know as well as I do, your mother and father didn't talk like that. And your grandparents definitely didn't talk like that. And if they would have told you that, they would have said it to you while you were airborne as they were knocking you <laughs> off the table. See? But, but the point is, the, the prophets in the Old Testament, in particular Haggai now, he, he wasn't there to make people feel good. He was there to proclaim God's word. And a preacher shouldn't be there to tickle people's ears and, and just make people smile. I mean, I'm not a comedian. Some preachers like to tell jokes and everything and get everything going, lighten up the crowd, you know, like a band is something like that. But I, I honestly believe that when it comes to God's word, it's holy. We're to be reverent. And it's a word that ought to pierce our heart and deal directly with who we are. And if we do have itching ears, it is not the preacher's role to scratch them. It is to say, here is what God's word says. And this is what Haggai is doing. So he says in verse five, consider your ways. And then in verse six, he starts telling them and he's telling them that, they, that this is why they're dealing with lack and insufficient funds and insufficient food. You have sown much and bring in little. So it's not that they didn't have seed to plant. Said you eat, but you don't have enough. It's not that they didn't have food. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. So it's not that they didn't have liquid. You clothe yourselves, but there is none warm. They had garments. And he that earned his wages earneth wages to put them into a bag with holes. They were making money, but they weren't making enough. So see the pattern here? Because they have neglected God and disregarded God's house, God essentially is just allowing insufficiency to take over. Never have enough. Never have enough. And this is why the scripture says in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these other things will be added. If you ignore God and his kingdom, and his righteousness, then you can expect these other things are going to be subtracted. It's, it's easy. The multiplication is easy when it comes to God. 
You do what God asks you to do, you can expect blessing. You refuse to do what God has told you to do, and, and, and you're going to have all kinds, all kinds of problems. So, so verse 6 again. Imagine a farmer out sowing with, without the mechanized stuff that we have today. I'm talking behind oxen and cows and mules and horses and all of that. In, in the heat of the day, he's putting all of this down in the ground, and then in the end, he doesn't even bring in enough. That's what happened. That's what happened. And if, if, you've ever, if you've ever eaten, and after you were done eating, you were still hungry, then you can get, gain some kind of idea of what this must have been like. So here would be people whose stomachs were growling as they were eating, and then their stomachs were growling after they were done eating because they couldn't, couldn't get enough. You get enough water to try to deal with that parched lip or that dry throat that you have, but you don't get enough to ever really deal with the problem of thirst that you're having. And then to have clothes that are just enough to put on, but not enough to keep warm. Isn't it nice to be able to come to church and when the air conditioner is on, you got a sweater you can put on? But imagine being somewhere where you don't have an extra sweater, where you don't have the garments that you want in order to be properly taken care of. Winter time in Israel is not an easy time to live. It gets cold over there. And they don't have big winter coats like you have at this time. This means that they didn't have the sheep that they needed to produce the fleece that they would have needed to produce the garments that they would have needed. We'll see that here in a little bit. So verse 7, he says again, consider your ways. Think about your predicament. Can't blame me. So God is saying, you can't blame me. Scripture says, my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. If God is a supplier by nature, then it is the goodwill of the father to give to his children. I mean, it says that in several places. If you ask God for bread, he doesn't give you a stone. He loves you enough to provide you the things that that you need. And now God, he, he will also supply your need in a way that's even greater than your desire sometimes. Yeah. God will open a door for you that six months before, a year before, you would not have thought would have been open for you. Or he'll provide you with a monetary blessing that you did not know would even be available before. Yeah, there, there, there have been plenty of times where... <clears throat> I've called home and, and said something uh, to this effect to my mom or dad. I said, well, uh, have, have, have you guys taken out any kind of insurance policy or something like that on yourselves and made me the beneficiary? And, 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 and then I'll call a couple of days later and I'll say something like, well, how are you guys feeling? Everybody, everybody, everybody feeling all right? <laughs> okay. You, you, you never know how blessing can can come to you. We don't want it to come that way, but I, I just like to bother my, my parents like that. Look at verse 8. Go up to the mountain, bring wood, build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. Now they're down in the valley and living on the sides of the hill, but he's telling them to go up and bring wood. Now that requires a whole lot of effort. You have to clear the land, cut the trees down, fall the trees or whatever, then you got to Get the wood prepared 
to be useful in the building of the structure. So they're probably going to be removing bark for, for on some of these, uh, some of these pieces of, of timber, and then they've got to make their way up that hill. You know as well as I do, carrying wood up a hill is not as easy as dragging it with beasts of burden. But however you get it up there, once you get up there, you got to get it into place. They didn't want to do that. These folks were procrastinating. They wanted to work hard for themselves, but they didn't want to work hard for God. Now you think about that. There are people who will work a 60-hour week. If it means they'll get overtime pay and stuff like that, but if someone asks them to do just a little bit extra for a church or for somebody who's a fellow believer, they can never find the time. Never find the time. And then have the audacity to complain that God doesn't help them when they're in need. Go up to the mountain, build the house, I'll be pleased. So apparently the reverse is true right now. He He's not pleased with the fact that they haven't taken wood up there on the mountain and he's not being glorified through their procrastination. God doesn't get any glory out of laziness and people not doing what they need to do. So verse nine, you look for much and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew upon it. Oh, my. That's, that tells you you've got God as an enemy. If you're in ancient Israel and had guys prophesying to you. And, and I'm sure that during this 21-day period that Haggai was speaking, there were probably people groaning every time they saw him coming down the street. And doesn't he have anything else to say to us? How long are we going to have to hear this message, consider your ways, until you amend your ways, until you change what you're doing? I was telling one of the other churches that... Um, Sometimes you hear people, and they'll say this about a preacher, they say, oh, I love to hear him or her teach on this subject. They are so anointed. And I said, you know, people always say so-and-so is so anointed when it's a subject that they like. Yeah, but when was the last time you heard somebody teaching on the wrath of God or on hell? And you said, oh, my goodness, I'm telling you, he is anointed to teach, to teach on doom and gloom. We don't. But God is standing and he's resisting the children of Israel. He, this isn't his desire. He wants to bless them. But because of their actions toward his house, there has to be a reciprocal action on, on his part and he's blowing upon everything that they have. And here's the question. Why, saith the Lord of hosts, because my house is waste and all of you run every man to his own house. Not thinking about my home at all, but you're running back and forth to your, your own. So across the nation and around the world, you can find temples that are lavishly decorated. You ever seen some of those temples in India? Oh, my goodness. They put a whole lot of money in them. When you see the postcards in Israel of the dome on the rock, that's a pretty big, thick uh, piece of uh, gold that's on top of there. And that's real gold. And when you think of in places like China and Central Asia, South Central Asia, where they have all of these Buddhist temples, 
I'm telling you, there's a whole lot of money that goes into religion. A lot of money goes into religion. If, if you could walk through the Vatican today, you'd be amazed by the beauty. But if somebody were to give you an estimate of how much it all costs, you realize there have been people paying for that for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And the Lord's telling the children of Israel, you folks had great expectation, but your expectation disappointed you. And you didn't even realize I'm the one that was blowing on it. He was the one. Just, just blowing, just watching it go away like chaff in the wind. And, and the reason is because they failed to take notice of his home. So verse 10, therefore, the heaven over you is stayed from dew. That means no moisture. And the earth is stayed from her fruit. No production. Yeah. And I called for a drought upon the land and upon the mountains and upon the corn and upon the new wine and upon the oil, and upon that which the ground bringeth forth, and upon men, that means barrenness, and upon cattle, and upon all the labor of the hands. Isn't that bad news? How'd you like to have that prophesied to you for three weeks? Yeah. He's telling these folks, if you think the days of yesterday were bad, wait till you see tomorrow. You're in trouble because you're not obeying God. However, he said, there is a way to turn this train around. Start obeying God. Let's march up to the Temple Mount. Now, verse 12 goes on to tell us that the governor, Zerubbabel, and the priest, Joshua, and all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet. Now that is the position we're to take when we hear God's word. Respond to it through obedience. We hear the word, then we obey the word. And the scripture says that the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him and the people did fear before the Lord. So a reverence came back to them. The man of God preached the holy fear of God descended in that place. And once again, people started making their way back up the mountain to start working on, on God's house. And the only way to produce the fear of God amongst a congregation is by proclaiming God's word. You, you have to understand, grace has to be taught to people. But grace is only effective if people have something like the law that they can use to compare it or contrast it with. It is, it is the law that points out to me what sin is. It is the grace of God that gives me the ability to flee to the cross. For ancient Israel, the law would have been obey me or trouble is coming. But the grace for them would have been trusting in the sacrifices that are offered up there in the outer court and believing that, that God is going to be pleased with their actions. So grace in the law is absolutely essential. And the person who only feeds on the law is going to be a mean-spirited person. Absolutely mean-spirited. They'll never be able to preach on the love of God or his loving kindness or his mercy. The person who preaches on grace and only reads about grace and never wants to read the Old Testament is going to have this version of a sloppy agape and God never judges anybody and there's never any kind of wrath. God's never disappointed with anybody. Doesn't matter if you're a sinner, how bad you are. God is in love with you. 
See, so there has to be balance. And the balance comes when the man of God by the name of Haggai comes because he is a representation of the mercy of God reaching out to Israel. Anytime somebody tells us to turn from our sins, stop doing what we're doing because it's wrong. That's love. That's love. Now, we don't always think that, but but there are a lot of children that when they're they're teenagers, they don't think mom and dad are loving them when they're telling them we want you to avoid this particular character that we see you running with in high school because I think he or she is trouble. They say, oh, no, mom, dad, you're being judgmental. Shouldn't be like that. But then when those same children become adults and have their own children, then it just seems like their parents get smarter and smarter as the years go by. Yeah, because they realize now that when they were telling me I need to clean up my room and I probably ought to clean my ears and brush my teeth and learn how to wash my clothes and all that kind of stuff, that, that they were teaching me things that were going to be useful later on in life. So here we have Haggai being used of the Lord. So verse 14, the Lord stirred up the spirit of the governor and the spirit of the priest and the spirit of the remnant of the people, and they came and did work in the house of the Lord. Here is how you know revival came. That's revival. That's revival. Because they, they now find themselves in a predicament where they're doing the work of God and not merely listening to it. Until we start doing what God has told us to do, there really hadn't been any kind of application of the word. But when revival comes and we see ourselves in light of what God has accomplished for us, that's when change comes. And you can always tell because of the different activity taking place. Now, we have a tendency to like to teach on the fruits of revival. Joy, offerings going up, people being healed, rather than teaching on the things that produce revival. Messages on self-denial, teaching of the cross, dealing with pride, uh, uh, teaching people to mortify the deeds of the flesh so that Christ can manifest himself in that church. And when revival comes, things happen. Absolutely, things happen. And, and certainly... Churches, churches need this without a doubt. I remember a story one time, uh, Brother Clendenin said he was preaching, I think he was in New Orleans, and said he was up in the, the pulpit, preached the first, second, third, or fourth night, and he said the fifth night the choir was still up behind him in the choir stand, and as he was ministering the word of God, he started hearing a little bit of noise in the back. He could tell people were talking, and he said people jumped up out of that choir came running down on either side, went down the center aisle and was cussing and screaming, saying, I don't want to hear any of this anymore, and ran straight out into the parking lot. He said he just kept preaching. After the service, come to find out, the parishioners went out there to see what was going on with these folks, come to find out here where people caught up in homosexuality, but yet were singing in the choir. Singing in the choir. Now, the, the homosexuals didn't make the church a dark place. But they simply found a dark place called a church and went and blended in. See? But when revival came, then the blessing, the blessing of God was there. On another occasion, I remember him telling a story. He, he went to preach in a church where it had one time been a church with several hundreds of people. Said it had been a good revival church, old AG church down in Texas. 
And he said, but it had, it had had so many problems, it had dwindled and fell apart and just dwindled down to about maybe 20 or 25 people. So he said they invited him to come. This was back in the 50s, early 50s. And he said while he was, he was there, he said he was preaching some very, very hard messages to the congregation. And he said the people just sit there and look at him, not, no change of expression at all. And he said he was just preaching hard night after night. said one evening his wife said to him, said, Daddy, when are you going to pour in a little bit of oil? You're, you're preaching so hard you're hurting these people. And he said to his wife, he said, Honey, I haven't even wounded them. Have you looked at them when I'm preaching? He said there's nothing happening at all. But he said communion service is going to be Sunday so I'm going to preach a nice communion message. Well, Sunday morning came, five o'clock in the morning, God woke him up. And, and as he was laying there, God spoke to him and said, you won't break communion with anybody until you break it with me. He told his wife, he said, you bring the babies to church later on for the service. I'm going over to the church and just lay in that altar and pray and talk to God about what this is all about. So he said he got there in that altar and after he'd been praying and talking to the king for a little bit, he said God spoke to him and said, your verse is going to be out of Peter, which says judgment must begin at the house of God. He read that and he thought to himself, my wife's not going to be too pleased. <laughs> She's not going to be too pleased at all. So sure enough, they came, had the service, opened it up, gave it to him. Brother Clendenin said he got up. And, and he said it was like somebody turned on a fire hose or a faucet. He said it just came pouring out of him as he was preaching. He said he was dealing with the kind of sins that in the early 50s and mid 50s you would have never even thought would have been going on in a church. And he said just as fast as God turned it on, he said an hour and a half later, God just turned the spigot off. He said to the deacons, he said, now it's time for communion. I'm going to ask you. You deacons to come down and get everybody ready for the communion part of the service. Said nobody moved. Just quiet. Not a soul said anything. So his wife was sitting there on the front row with her head down, her eyes closed, holding the babies. And he said he tried to look at his wife to get her attention, say, let's just ease on out the side door. And if they owe us anything, they can mail it to us. But she never looked up. He said it again. He said, Deacons, if you guys would come down, please get us ready for communion. Nobody moved. So he, he turned to look for the pastor because the pastor was back in one of the, the chairs. Location where you last saw them, you don't know where they have gone. So he looked back there, didn't see him in that chair in the pulpit, but he heard somebody groaning. So he turned around, looked, the pastor had got out of the chair, crawled up under the chair, and was just laying there just groaning, just saying, oh, God, oh, God. So Brother Clendenin said he got down on all fours and got on his belly, crawled up under the chair, and said to him, said, Pastor, I'm trying to get the people to get us ready for communion. What are we going to do? And he said the pastor kept groaning, and he finally looked at that young preacher and said, you have killed every one of us. An evangelist, Brother Clendenin said, well, pastor, what are we going to do? The pastor said, I'm not going to do anything but stay up under this chair and cry and groan. Brother Clendenin gets up in the pulpit again. He says, Brother Deacon, I'm asking you to come down. 
And he said, suddenly from the back of the church, he said, a man yelled. He said, you'd have to go to hell to hear a man yell as loud as he yelled in agony and anguish. He said, that man got up and started walking down the center aisle, fell in that altar and started yelling like somebody that had appendicitis, and he threw a fist full of 20s and 50s at that preacher, the pastor, and he shouted and said, I swore I'd starve you to death, but now I'm begging God to forgive me. Begging God to forgive me. And when he did that, person after person got up and came, and that altar began to weep and cry. And people that had been in the choir, little girls that had been in love with the same boy, had been fornicating with the same boy, and all kinds of other problems in that church. One by one, people started making amends. That service went on 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Said the evening service, nobody made any announcement at all, couldn't find a place to park anywhere because they had let so many people know what was going on. And said the next day, said one of the neighbors had called the pastor and said, what in the world was going on over there at the church the other day? I hadn't heard a peep out of you folks in years. See, revival had come to that place because somebody had came and proclaimed God's word. So if a person will, will preach God's word and proclaim it without compromise, good things will happen. Tiff and I have seen services just like that. We went to a fellowship one time, and, and here uh, we had the, the altar service that was beginning after the word. We started ministering to people. Folks started falling down in that altar. People were weeping and crying. There was a lot of yelling and things going on. And, and afterwards, I just stepped back and just sat down and listened as one girl after another got up and testified about how they got ensnared in the web of lesbianism and how Jesus had set them free in that service and brought them out of that. And we were just stunned by it. Here's a family in the church thinking they're doing a wonderful thing, bringing in a young lady who needed a place to stay. She came into that home. They had a daughter. This lady that they brought in to give a place to stay introduced the daughter to lesbianism. And the two of them just went straight throughout the church. And I mean, it, it just just multiplied. So here comes my wife and I. We've got to preach the gospel in this dark place. We're not intimidated by anything. But in just a few moments, God's word cut through all of that. I see another preacher. They would have came in and wanted to preach on five ways God's going to prosper you. See? Or they came in with, with, a, with a poem and a few little things they wanted to read to people. But when you come in and you observe, the ground needs to be plowed in order for it to be seeded. Then you can deal with the circumstances. That means that there are times the notes just don't matter. What is it that God is saying? And if God is able to communicate his word, then wonderful things can happen. Amen. There's no doubt about it. Wonderful things can happen. I remember one service in here years ago. I don't know how many young ladies we laid hands on on a Sunday night service. God was filling them with the Holy Spirit around here like people were getting, I mean, like popcorn, just on the griddle, just, just breaking out. 
But the, the, the power of God just descended because of his presence. Now, folks, if there's anything that their county needs, and if there's anything our nation needs, the presence of God. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, just like I am. Let us not fail to look after God's house. Put it first. Make sure you put something in here every day. Feed yourself spiritually. Do not be the kind of person that shirks your responsibility in looking after this place where God lives because God will not hold the man or woman guiltless who doesn't take care of this. Paul says it this way in Corinthians. He said, the one that destroys God's house, him God will destroy. So put God first in everything in your life. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful that Haggai was so clear. And we can see where all of us can, can make changes. And I, I certainly can, can see, even as you were dealing with my heart in the teaching of this, Lord, I pray that each of us will walk with you in a closer, closer manner. I pray that your presence would be upon us. I pray that we'll be strong examples and have a strong witness wherever we go. These things we pray for in Jesus' mighty name and everyone said, amen, amen, amen.